We had a story yesterday about how none of the hospitals are stepping up to mandate vaccines, and that just might change today. It's a conversation we're having on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. I woke up yesterday thinking it should be Friday, so today should be Saturday, right? <laughs> if only. <laughs> Why are we on this podcast? <laughs> Soon, Jane, every day for you will be Saturday. Mm-hmm. Let's begin. How many Afghan refugees have arrived in Cleveland and how many more do we expect? Laura Johnson, we can get a lot of them, right? Yeah, this is really cool. And I didn't know much about it before reading Cameron Fields' story. So far, we have 30 that have come to Cleveland. We're expecting hundreds more. And Global Cleveland is playing a big role in this, as well as charities like Cleveland Catholic Charities and the Refugee Response. There's a legal clinic this week where about 300 people receive financial support to bring family to Cleveland through these I-131 applications. They cost about $575. Another 200 people filled out the forms without any help. And then separately, Cleveland's one of 19 cities on this list of resettlement locations for Afghan refugees through a special immigrant visa program. So is, is is this people that are strangers to Cleveland or are they all related to people who live here? It sounds like at least with the 500 going with the I-131 applications, they know family and they would be coming to, to people they're familiar with. But the, the other special immigrant visa program is is pretty cool. It's with the 19 cities on it, including Pittsburgh, Austin, and Baltimore. They're on this list because resettlement agencies have decided the cities have a reasonable cost of living, housing availability, supportive services, and an overall welcoming community, which apparently this is kind of a tradition in Cleveland to welcome refugees. We helped resettle Vietnamese refugees after the Vietnam War, welcome Jewish people from the Soviet Union in the 70s and the 80s. So Global Cleveland saying, we have the room here, we have the infrastructure, we have the jobs, we know what we're doing. We want these folks to come to Cleveland. And Cleveland has that really cool school where anybody who comes in who can't speak English, they go to this school and there are people speaking, I don't know, a dozen languages there to indoctrinate them into the school system and get them to be able to speak English. It's a it's a cool place to visit just because there's so many different cultures represented. Uh, so we'll have to see if a lot of the kids end up there. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are Democrats and Republicans working on their own sets of new maps for Ohio and Senate House districts? Jane Cahoon, I thought this was supposed to be bipartisan. <laughs> well, so far, it looks like the only thing that's bipartisan is this roadshow that, that's happening this week, the, the public hearings that the Redistricting Commission is, is holding around the state to get public input. But as Andrew Tobias pointed out in a story, the, the real work seems to be going on behind the scenes you know, among staff members since since they now have these census databases that Ohio University prepared for them. You might remember that they recently got census data, but it was late because of the pandemic and it was in this raw form that had to be cleaned up. So, oh, you helped them with that. Anyway, we only have a, a week to go before the first deadline under under these new redistricting rules this commission has to release a state legislative map proposal by September 1st. And then they have until September 15th to to pass maps that would last for 10 years. And that would require approval from the commission's two Democrats. There's five Republicans on the commission. Um, Otherwise, Republicans on the commission could could pass maps on their own after uh, September 15th, but they would only be good for 
like four years. So the the Republican and Democratic legislative leaders can have been kind of driving this bus, like developing their own map proposals. And at some point soon, they're supposed to share them with each other. People familiar with the process say that uh, particularly Republican Senate President Matt Huffman has been kind of steering the ship here. But um, and then uh, separately, we've got another set of deadlines for congressional maps that then that starts on September 30th. But that yeah, process but, starts in the legislature. Yeah, but that, but, but so. I, I just don't get it why the Democrats would be in a room drawing up their own maps when that there's no hope of their maps being considered. And why wouldn't the Republicans have some Democrats in the room so that there could at least be some give and take now? I mean, if Are the you Republicans, kidding? Yeah, but, <laughs> but they're going to have to, to consider what the Democrats have to say at some point. So why, you know, why not have them in the room and say, look, this is where we're headed, you know, get a little bit of input. They can reject it. But it just seems like if the Republicans dump the map on the first setting, you know, the 15 day time clock before they have to be passed, it's, it squeezes the time at which this can be moved around. Well, I, I have to believe in the next few days, the Democrats and Republicans are going to start negotiating with each other and sharing, like, here's our map proposal. How does that compare to your map proposal? And um, Vernon Sykes, Senator Vernon Sykes of Akron, one of the two Democrats on the commission said, you know, it hasn't gotten to that level of negotiating yet or sharing information. But he said, you know, it's a real challenge with this time crunch to actually put together a map. So he said they're working to do that. Um, you know, All right. they're behind closed doors. Why aren't they behind closed doors together? It's just it's one of those. Yeah, I know. I know. Seventy percent of the voters went to the polls to say, fix this stupid system that created the ridiculous districts we have now. They're not listening. They're they're doing yeah. what they did. I got is it in a hotel room is behind closed doors. They in said a hotel um, the, the Republicans, uh, uh, the Senate Republicans said it's on state property. They're, you know, staff members are working <laughs> on state property. But, you know, keep in mind, they do have to adhere to certain rules about limiting the splitting of cities and counties and keeping the districts compact and supposedly not favoring one political party over another. But, uh, you know, as you said, what we have now we got Republicans controlling 64 of 99 seats in the House and 25 of 33 seats in the Senate, a supermajority that allows them to override governor's vetoes. And that doesn't mirror at all the state's uh, electorate. Republicans have gotten around 55 percent of the votes over the past 10 years. So, well, But here's the other thing. They, everybody involved, including the governor, who has you know, skipped out on these things so he could go to a football practice, have promised full transparency there's zero transparency. They're all behind closed doors. Why, why wouldn't the Democrats say, look, the Republicans won't let us in to contribute to their map. But here's what we're thinking. Everybody check this out. We're, we're completely in the dark here. We're all I worry have... about that because it's like they're all complicit in this. Right. You know? they're, well, and you wonder about what kind of deals they're making to selfishly protect their districts so that I, I just the whole thing is is bad. And the voters really don't want this they how often do we get 70 percent of the voters going to the to in a and we've got direction? like pretty good turnout for these public hearings where people are going there and saying this stinks you know well when the first ones hit we're going to be all over it because this process so far is not engendering any confidence in our legislative leaders you're listening to this week in the cle
What do prosecutors say they will attempt to prove in the trial of former Cuyahoga County Jail Director Ken Mills? Leila Tassi, until yesterday, I think it was yesterday, all we knew was what they had said in court papers. Yesterday, they finally got before a jury and said, here is what we intend to show. Yes, and already it's it's fascinating. So they're setting out to prove that Mills negligently mismanaged the jail to the point where the facility violated safety regulations and inmates didn't receive adequate health care, food or shelter, while the county basically was turning a profit on warehousing these prisoners. So prosecutors also will seek to prove that Mills lied to county council when he denied playing a role in blocking the hiring of nurses. In the opening statements on Wednesday, the prosecutor said Mills was hired with the the directive from County Executive Armand Budish to pull off the county's plan to regionalize the jail. And that meant eventually drawing in more inmates from the suburbs than that facility could handle. And in doing that, Mills failed to properly staff the jail with corrections officers and nurses leading up to the, that expansion. That's what prosecutors say. That resulted in deteriorating conditions, those frequent lockdowns that we wrote about, and inmates sleeping on the floors, often with either their head or feet under the toilet. And on account of these conditions, six inmates died from June and December, uh, between June and December of 2018. So we're only a day into testimony, and already we've covered a lot of ground and heard some really damning stuff. Metro Health's former director of nursing, Gary Brack, testified that Mills thwarted requests to hire more nurses for the jail and for the Euclid jail, where at one point they had no nurses at all. He said Mills would say there were too many nurses and that it would be a waste of money, basically, to to hire more. And you'll remember that Brack famously told this story to county council during a hearing in 2018, and Armin Budish called upon Metro Health CEO Akram Boutros the next day to remove Brack from his job. He eventually was forced out and is now suing the county. In, in, in one particularly awful set of circumstances, Brack said people who were arrested off the street were supposed to receive medical screenings from nurses at the downtown jail to, de- to determine if they were healthy enough to be transferred to the Euclid facility where there were no registered nurses on staff. But Mills started directing sheriff's department security officers to take those arrested people directly to the Euclid facility because medical staff at the downtown jail weren't approving enough inmates for transfer. So, you know, Brack, uh, Brack also said that, you know, there weren't enough officers assigned to security detail in the medical unit, which led to right, very but, unsafe conditions. But, stop, um, but, but, but is it a crime? Is, is incompetence a crime? I guess that's the, there's a high standard to prove here. You've got to prove that it's not just he made bad decisions in his job, but that it was criminally negligent what he did. That that is a I mean, every juror has been in a workplace. Every juror has has made decisions. I'm sure they're going to be wondering whether, you know, if I made a mistake at work that's that bad, do I get charged with a crime? And I think that's I the mean, challenge that you have here. Mills you do have this to death. You Mill, know, you Mills have a is lot saying of people he's who died. He's he's the scapegoat here. He says, you know, he was number three in command. Why should he have to take the fall for this? He was just kind of following the directive from up high to execute this this giant merger and uh, and that he was doing his best to to make that happen. But but (laughs) people were dying and he was aware of this. He was aware of these conditions and he plowed forward with the directive 
to, I mean, at what point, and then lied to county council, according to prosecutors. And we covered that too. I mean, that's Since not when just is lying to county council a crime? I mean, you covered city council for a long time. Do you feel like everything you ever saw was truthful? <laughs> Come on, don't put me on the spot. <laughs> I'm not on trial here. <laughs> I, I just the lying to council thing is kind of a, a funny one. The, the no, but look, uh, clearly the, the the point though was that he was trying to cover up that he was depriving them of the nursing staff that they needed to take care of these inmates. I mean, yeah. he was trying to to cut everything down, save, saving yes, money, trying to save money right. to 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 boost that bottom line, and that's just dastardly. Right, right. It's going, and and he's saying that I did it at the direction of my superiors, sure. who will be testifying, or at least will be called to testify. Whether they actually testify remains to be seen. The trial continues today. You're listening to this week in this CLE. Why haven't Metro Health, University Hospitals, and the Cleveland Clinic mandated coronavirus vaccines for their staffs? Laura Johnston, we finally did a story on this because we could not understand why the big three in Cleveland were not doing it when hospitals in Summit County had and hospitals elsewhere in the country have. What did we learn? Well, we, we still don't really know the answer. So we asked the question. We had a reporter look into this. We don't have a clear answer because the hospitals aren't really explaining themselves. Uh, as of as of Wednesday, the clinic Metro Health and UH are not saying when or if they expect to require employees to be vaccinated. And they didn't really elaborate why or when they'll make that decision. All three, of course, said that they're going to encourage vaccines, that they want to protect their employees, but they're focusing on encouraging caregivers to receive the vaccine. They're providing education, making sure that it is accessible. But you're right. I mean, SUMA, the VA, um, they're among 2,200 hospitals nationwide that have already announced some sort of mandatory vaccination policy, including um, the Mayo Clinic, which, you know, the, the Cleveland Clinic is in that same kind of orbit. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they're all worried about losing employees, uh, mm -hmm. you know, especially the some of the lower paid employees. There are a bunch of people that don't want to get the vaccine. But there are also people that are going into those hospitals for procedures and they're saying, hey, is everybody in the room vaccinated and finding out they're not? I think our story might have been a day out of sync because I think one of the systems will announce today that they're doing it. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What double standard is Ohio State University using when it comes to mandating coronavirus vaccines? Jane Cahoon, I'm throwing the flag on this one. <laughs> this is so bogus, it's unbelievable. How appropriate that you are throwing the penalty flag because, uh, to put it simply, they're not going to have a vaccine mandate for the many devoted football fans who come to see the Buckeyes play in the shoe in Columbus. Uh, as you said, we reported the other day that the university imposed a vaccine mandate on students and staff, and that requires them to be fully vaccinated by November 15th. But those rules do not apply at the stadium, which holds about 100,000 people. So the fans will simply have to follow general campus requirements that you have to wear a face mask indoors. So like if you're on public transportation being shuttled to the stadium, you have to wear a mask. Or if you're in a bathroom at the stadium or like in a hallway leading to a suite, you have to wear a mask, um, but they don't have to in the suites. It, it gets a little complicated. And I'm talking about masks here, not vaccines for, for that. But um, as far as not requiring uh, proof of vaccination, their, their explanation is that 
this policy for the stadium was based on the best available scientific data and best guidance from public health and medical experts, including, you know, from the university, the city of Columbus and state and federal officials. But, you know, they also relied on guidance when they, medical guidance, you know, especially involving the Delta variant when they issued the, the uh, vaccine mandate for the students and staff. So, yeah, anyway. you know, relying on that. Well, back when we made the decision, we relied on the best information. Okay, but everything's changed. The Delta variant is on the rage. We're seeing numbers in Ohio we haven't seen since the very beginning of the year. Look, they made a bold decision when they came out right after the FDA gave full approval to the Pfizer vaccine. They came out the next day and said, okay, students, you must be vaccinated. Staff, you must be vaccinated. I think it's by some date in November. And, and that, that, was, that was bold. It was leadership. But to come back and say, <laughs> yeah, you don't need a mask to come into the football game. Other colleges in the country and, and many venues are saying, you got to mask up or you've got to be vaccinated to come to our vaccines. I mean, we did the story at pretty much every music venue in Cleveland. Now, if you want to go to a show, you've got to be vaccinated. So for them to say, well, we based that decision back at the time on the best science. The science has changed. <laughs> Can I jump in? I just I have a... well, the next question is going to be your soapbox question. So so just be ready. <laughs> Listen, so so here's what I'm thinking. Um, this might be cynical, but. So if there's an outbreak on campus, then then everyone knows that it's I mean, it's everyone knows that it makes us makes Ohio State look terrible. But if it, an Ohio State football game is a super spreader event, no one can trace that back. No one's doing contact tracing anymore. No one knows. So if I'm Ohio State, who cares? Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. That's cynical, but seriously, that that I, I, I'm sure that I mean, they don't want to lose, you know, season ticket holders or all their da, 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 and all, you know, a- anger all those uh you know, those muckety-mucks who love Ohio State football, who, you know, donate to the school or whatever. So, I mean, if it can't get traced back to the to the college as a as a super spreader event, then uh, why is it on them? I mean, I, I that to me, I think that's why I mean, that's why they mandate the vaccine for all the students, because it would look terrible if there was an Ohio State uh, campus wide outbreak. I mean, that that hurts their bottom line. Yeah, and that's it, what it's, it's about, man. That's what it's about. <laughs> it's clearly a double standard, and it and it's we need to call it out. You're listening to this week in the CLE, Leila Tassi. I haven't given you a soapbox all week, so here goes. What Northeast Ohio <laughs> school district saw so many COVID cases in its first week that it changed its rules on masks? Willoughby Eastlake schools saw 25 new COVID cases in their first week since school started, which prompted them to rethink their masks optional policy because surprise, surprise, (laughs) those 25 cases resulted in an additional 82 people being forced into quarantine. What a way to start the school year, folks. You know, the, the school district was strongly recommending everyone wear masks when classes began on August 18th, but it didn't require them in a letter to parents, the superintendent said that the district decided to rethink its policy after seeking guidance from local health officials. Would have been good to do that on the front end, don't you think? But they're not the only districts already seeing upticks in infection rates. Medina City Schools has 30 current COVID-19 infections among students and three more among staff. All of this on the heels of that Fairfield Local Schools 
uh, story in Southern Ohio, which, you know, they announced Monday that they were forced to close for the rest of the week due to a rash of students, student absences that they're attributing to COVID and, and other illnesses. And at least 80 school districts across this, the country have had to delay or completely shut down classes for at least an entire school building in more than a dozen states, according to the Associated Press. So we're off to a great start in these districts where masks are optional. And it was all predicted. Doctors and health experts said this is what's going to happen if we don't have masks. And it's, like, it's not like this was a mystery. The, the science said you bring those kids back and they don't wear masks, you're going to have outbreaks. And it's a week in and we're already seeing well, it. And, and, you know, we, we our reporters also polled a lot of the districts and I was having cold sweats reading every single, you know, all that. I, I guess I didn't even think about how many districts are doing the masks optional approach here. What is this all about? Well, you know what it's about. You know it's about the outrage of people. And you you learned overnight the Jaga County Health Commissioner got drummed out of his job by a bunch of anti-maskers that showed up at a hearing and and went at them because they don't think we should muzzle our children and all that, all the nonsense. So you know why the school districts are buckling, because they've got a vocal, small group of parents screaming at them. But 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 the fact when kids aren't wearing masks, that counts as exposure, whereas if they had the masks, they could make the case that some kids were not as is closely exposed, you know, weren't exposed to. So so I mean, I would think that parents would be outraged by the fact that unmasked kids, if if you send your kid without a mask and there is a covid case, you are most likely going to spend two weeks in quarantine. Right. I mean, that's this your is, safe. Do you really want that? What it's that? Lo- this is Looney Tunes, but the parents have decided. It, look, it's the wedge issue. They're they're like spitting mad, saying you can't force masks, and so the I, the school boards, the school districts, they're they are feeling huge pressure. And I think the only thing that's going to turn that tide is what we are seeing in school districts with the rapid spread of uh, COVID. We'll have to see. We're checking this day by day. I have a feeling we'll have another story about another district today or tomorrow. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many dirt bikes have been stolen of late in Cleveland, and is there an easy way to stop the thefts? Laura Johnston, who knew? Dirt bike thefts. They're not even legal on the street, but, but there's a huge traffic in them. Yeah. Um, so three were stolen this past weekend. Those are among more than 90 that have been stolen since 2020. And this is such a big deal that that Cuyahoga County prosecutor, Mike O'Malley, had a news conference about it on Wednesday. And basically he's saying, do not let people test drive your bike. Don't meet people that you just met on Facebook Marketplace. So 83 of these thefts involved owners who were lured to the city after l- listing their bikes for sale online, like Craigslist, Facebook, um, some of them involve counterfeit cash, like people handed over fake money t- to buy the bikes. Others took their these ATVs for test drives and never returned them. Think about it. You're just like, I'd like to try out the bike. And someone says, okay. And they just never come. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird one. It's just, and they're not, they're not inexpensive. I mean, no, it's like 6000 to $9,000. And the victims have been as young as 16. So they, you know, they're just trying to, to sell it and, uh, instead getting swindled. Well, there are a lot of Clevelanders that hope whoever is stealing them, take them out of town. Then, then, <laughs> a lot of angry Clevelanders who've been stopped at uh, traffic lights as, as these guys speed up and down the road in large numbers. All right. Well, there you go. A new, a new crime trend in Cleveland. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
Why did the leader of the Hamilton County Republican Party get pounded on social media about his feelings on gerrymandering? You know, Jane Kuhn, we talked earlier about how we needed transparency in the gerrymandering <laughs> process. At least he's being transparent about his feelings. Yeah, it looks like he made the mistake of actually telling the naked truth uh, as a partisan, which he is. So this is Hamilton County Republican Party Chairman Alex Triantafilu, who uh, tweeted on Tuesday that Republicans should look out for Republicans when drawing Ohio's political maps. You know, despite these new rules we have that are supposed to fight ger gerrymandering, he he ended up deleting the tweet after Democrats and activists jumped all over him, accused him of advocating that Republicans violate the Ohio Constitution's new rules for for redistricting that voters approved overwhelmingly. But he uh, Andrew Tobias talked to him yesterday, and he said. You know, he he stood by what he said. Let me just give you the whole tweet. He said, this won't be my most popular tweet, but Republicans should look out for other Republicans when drawing the lines for apportionment. We won. Obama taught us. Elections have consequences. This is a red state treated as such. Voters value a spine. So that was pretty explosive. And, you know, not surprised that he ended up deleting it. He said it's because he got this abusive response. But as I said, he he made no apologies for, for being a partisan. That's what he is as the county GOP chairman. He said he wasn't urging Republicans to circumvent the process, merely to stand strong against accusations of gerrymandering. He said Republicans are tired of that. And, you know, he noted that he's not involved in the process. He's he's an onlooker. But but what happened really, what's behind this is that David Pepper, the former chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party, apparently got under his skin. Pepper spoke at one of the redistricting commission's public hearings, you know, and he, and he bashed Republicans for, for the secretive process they used 10 years ago, you know, that resulted in these egregiously gerrymandered uh, maps. So, uh, Triantafilu told Andrew that he's he is advocating for Hamilton County to be split between two different districts, um, you know, but he hasn't spoken to anybody on the commission. But, you know, even still and even after he deleted it, like Pepper was on Twitter saying someone must have clued it in that it's a bad clued him in that it's a bad idea to publicly confess to a motivation that is explicitly barred by the Ohio Constitution. So it was just quite the day on Twitter back and but, forth on this. Uh, you know, what surprises me about that is that we do have in Columbus uh, reasonable Republican legislators that want to get work done. And they're being hampered by kind of fringe loonies on the right that have been elected in Republican PAC districts. So so when, when you do this gerrymandering, you build districts where kind of crazy right wing fringe gets in and you get into the weird debates we've had this year about masking and arresting Mike DeWine and all those things. So I would think that a reasonable Republican would want a somewhat more competitive district just to stop having so many crazies in the state house. I mean, we had a hearing this week where some of these crazies are trying to ban all vaccine requirements for, for right. students. So they right. want kids to get chicken pox and measles and all that, all those things that happen when you stop vaccinations. And the way to stop that is to is to build a system where reasonable people get elected, which we don't have now. And I would think people like like this guy who who, I you know, sounds like he might be halfway reasonable, would want 
to have normal representation instead of the kooks we have down there now. <laughs> As I said, I think I think Pepper just got under his skin by by bashing the Republicans, and and he's just tired of being accused of doing you know uh, this gerrymandering, and so it, I think it just got to him, and he and he put it out there, and then. Um, you know, I assume he's maybe a little bit sorry he did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Are the people running for Cleveland City Council in Ward 4 upset that former Councilman Ken Johnson, who was convicted on multiple counts of stealing from the taxpayers, remains on the ballot? Leila Tassi, you wondered about this when we talked about how he could still win re-election even though he can't get the seat because of his conviction. So we went out and did the story you talked about. What did the candidates tell us? They're mad about it. (laughs) Go figure. You know, and as well they should be. You know, Ken Johnson has no business remaining on the ballot. His criminal conviction bars him from serving in, in the office, even if he were to win. But as Bob Higgs has reported, there's really nothing anyone can do about Johnson's being on the ballot right now. He hasn't been sentenced yet, which means that he hasn't lost his right to vote, which means he maintains eligibility to run for office under the city charter. Even though by the time the general election is done, Ken Johnson will have been sentenced and will be ineligible to serve in public office. So he's it's just he's just ruining it for everybody. You know, really, only Ken Johnson can do the right thing here by the people of his ward and and bow out to let the elective process play out the way it's supposed to. And he refuses to do it. So in the best case scenario, he's siphoning votes from his 10 fellow candidates. In the worst case, he ends up winning and city council will have to appoint someone to fill that seat. Bob Higgs called most of Ken Johnson's or he reached out to all of them, really, all the the 10 fellow candidates, and they all expressed their dismay about this situation. They say that they they worried that this was going to happen and that there is a real fear that Johnson still commands the loyalty of his base. They've supported him overwhelmingly for 40 years. And the candidates think that he should withdraw. They think he's bringing shame to their ward. They think it makes them all look bad and causes many voters to lose faith in the process when they see a convicted criminal was able to stay on the ballot. Some candidates said they do have faith that voters are sick of Johnson and will reject him outright anyway. But they all agreed that they have to focus on campaigning on their own merits rather than against a man who can't even hold the office. But, you know, like I said, he's just he's just ruining it. (laughs) Okay. We'll see. We'll have results of that in just a few weeks. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week of news.